Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses uh, for being here and want to thank our ranking member for um, continual cooperation and making sure that these hearings uh, go off as, as appropriate. Um, I gave some long-winded opening comments yesterday, so I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'll just generally outline the fact that uh, our relationship with Pakistan has been uh, very complicated. I think we've gone through a period of time where we both viewed our relationship as very transactional. Um, we went through a period of time where we tried to change that and, and uh, deal with Pakistan in a different manner and to create a more whole relationship with them. And from my standpoint, uh, uh, that hasn't been very successful. Uh, we've expended about $33 billion of U.S. taxpayer dollars towards Pakistan since uh, the early 2000s. Um, I think we've probably all been to the FATA areas and seen the expense, uh, the, actually the tremendous progress that was made there with U.S. dollars with electricity and roads coming in to, to really cause those areas not to be as fertile, if you will, for uh, terrorists. And uh, I'm being a little bit uh, cutting to the chase and saying this, but whereas at one time we were using our drones to ferret out terrorists in that region, what ultimately happened was they moved to the suburbs of Pakistan and they're now uh, uh, getting medical care. Uh, they are, the, the Akani Network leadership has been living there. Um, the government of Pakistan knows where they live and what in essence has happened is where we used to be able to take them out uh, to be somewhat crude. Uh, in the Fata areas, now that they're living in the suburban areas, uh, we cannot do that. And matter of fact, uh, they have safe haven there. They're the number one killers of U.S. or attempted killers of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. It's been of tremendous uh, concern to our leadership there. Um, that we have this policy where, in effect, uh, we're working with Pakistan, and yet the extreme duplicity that exists with the relationship is that on one hand, they say they want to see a stable Afghanistan. On the other hand, they're harboring people and through their own proxies uh, are destabilizing Afghanistan. So I thank our witnesses for being here. Uh, it's a very frustrating relationship and working with others on the committee. Um, I think you all know we've put a hold on resources relative to uh, the acquisition of uh, F-16s, which I think is appropriate. I think all of us are becoming uh, uh, more and more frustrated with our relationship, and um, I'm sure we're going to hear some pros and cons today, but we thank you for being here to help us more fully how we uh, understand how we need to go forward in our relationship there. So with that, uh, I will uh, turn it over to our distinguished uh, ranking member, Senator Ben Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, when you um, indicate that our relationship with Pakistan is complicated, that might be the understatement of the day. Uh, this is very uh, challenging, the relationship with Pakistan. It is one of our strategic partners in our counterterrorism and a very dangerous part of the world. When we look at what Pakistan's borders with China, Afghanistan, Iran, India, and they have been effective in working with the United States in dealing with al-Qaeda in Pakistan. So uh, it is a strategic partner in our war against terror. But as you point out, we have major concerns about that relationship. 
Uh, they seem to be very selective in the terrorist organizations that they go against. And the Akani network, as you point out, uh, has had too much freedom in that country. The LET and its impact on India and our relationships in that region is also a matter of major concern. So we have problems in our relationship with Pakistan. This is a very timely hearing, and I thank you very much for calling it. Uh, we went through uh, a discussion in regards to a potential arms sale, F-16s, to Pakistan. And as you and I both know, and members of this committee, that was very complicated. And there were many factors engaged in our discussions. And quite frankly, we didn't think we had all the information we needed. And I think this hearing will help us to fill in some of those blanks as to how we're going to move forward in the relationship with Pakistan. We also know that it's a country in which its military leadership plays a very important role. And there's a scheduled change in their military leadership this month. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts on this relationship. In 2018, they have their parliamentary elections. So a lot's going on. In addition, uh, at least the reports that I've seen, it's, uh, has, it's not the fastest, one of the fastest growing nuclear arsenals in the world. So it's a, a country of major interest, a strategic partner in our war against terror and counterterrorism uh, to help it degrade al-Qaeda. Uh, certainly they've done that in the federally administrative tribal areas. Uh, but they have selectivity in how they uh, help in this campaign. In some cases, they have been counterproductive to our efforts. So the question is, how can we use our tools more effectively to uh, change the behavior in Pakistan. We do provide, as you point out, Mr. Chairman, a significant amount of, uh, of, of assistance to this country. Is there a better way of doing this? Uh, we've, we've tried conditionality of aid, but is there a better way that we can uh, deal with our relationship and all the tools that we use so that we can get a more comprehensive partner in dealing with the threat of terrorism? Uh, there are some related issues that I hope we'll have a chance to talk about uh, that deal with good governance in Pakistan, which to me is fundamental to their long-term security, maybe even short-term security. Uh, promotion of democratic institutions, support for international NGOs and what they're doing in regards to registration and whether that will have an impact on uh, their future development of democratic institutions. Uh, their tolerance for religious freedom is a major concern. And we welcome um, thoughts as to how we can be more effective in uh, instilling upon uh, the, the authorities of Pakistan the importance for religious tolerance. And then we talk about the federally administrative tribal areas, and we know there's been a cleansing of much of the terrorist organizations there, but what comes next? I've heard no real game plan on how that area can be governed. So uh, is there a, how can we rebuild an area and provide the type of longer-term stability that prevents the return of terrorist organizations that we may have been effective in at least short-term uh, 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 degrading. So, Mr. Chairman, this is an extremely important hearing, and I thank you very much, and you've brought together a distinguished panel, and I look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you, and I, I, I appreciate your comments and scene setting. Um, I'll just add to the fact that uh, they continue to not do the things in their own country to generate revenues uh, to support their own nation. I mean, it's a, you sit down with the business community there, and it's, a, it's just a fascinating um, discussion. So, look, I, I don't think I've had a conversation yet with leadership 
uh, on the military side and the ISI side that uh, hasn't been full of duplicity, and I can't say that enough. And uh, the fact that, uh, again, I just want to reiterate the fact that they know exactly where these Akani Network leadership uh, members live. They know where their families are. When they pass through roadblocks, they give them get-out-of-jail-free cards. They provide medical care. The fact that they are a threat to our nation um, and that what's in essence happened through our policies, they've moved it one more time into suburban areas where we cannot get at them and they're not willing to get at them, to me is a, a tremendous problem. Our fir first witness is Dr. Toby Dalton, the co-director of Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace in Washington. We thank you so much for being here. Our second witness is Dr. Daniel Markey, a senior research professor of international relations and academic director of the P Global Policy Program at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. Uh, we thank you for being here. And our third witness is Dr. Robert Grenier, Grenier uh, a former director of CIA Counterterrorism Counterterrorism Center and current chairman of ERG Partners in Washington. I think you all understand. You can summarize your comments uh, in about five minutes, we hope. Uh, your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record. And again, we can't thank you enough for being here and helping us with this issue today. And if you'll just begin and go through in the order that I introduced you, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin, uh, both for your leadership uh, on these important issues, but also for the invitation to appear before the committee today. In my remarks, I will try to provide a clear-eyed assessment of the challenges to U.S. policy posed specifically by developments in Pakistan's nuclear weapons program and what they mean for U.S. policy and interests in South Asia. I would note that in the testimony I submitted for the record, there's a more expansive discussion on these issues, including on India's nuclear program, uh, but I'll focus specifically on Pakistan today. Let me start by outlining two priorities that I believe should guide U.S. policy in this regard and then turn to some analysis of the challenges. The first priority is to prevent the use of nuclear weapons, which is most likely to occur during a military confrontation. Successive U.S. administrations have intervened during serious South Asian crises to contain conflict before nuclear weapons could be deployed. This is a role that the U.S. should be expected to continue. The second priority is to maintain the security of nuclear weapons and material. The probability of a nuclear terrorist incident remains low, but the consequences would be severe, both locally and globally, with the added concern that in South Asia, terrorists might attempt to use nuclear weapons to precipitate another war between India and Pakistan. These priorities face growing challenges in the region. Publicly, information, publicly available information suggests that Pakistan's nuclear arsenal may number 120 or more weapons, and that over the past decade, it expanded significantly the production of fissile material, uh, such that it could add perhaps 20 nuclear weapons per year to its arsenal at full production. Estimates such as this yield the common perception that Pakistan has the fastest growing nuclear program. It is also actively developing a number of short and long range missile to missiles to carry these weapons. One of the newer ones that has caused considerable global concern is a battlefield missile, the Nasser, which Pakistani government officials assert will carry a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon designed to deter India from carrying out conventional military operations against Pakistan. It is important that we try to understand why Pakistan has expanded the size and scope of its nuclear forces. 
I think there are two forces at work here. The first is a perceived need to meet an expanding set of threats from India. These threats include growth in Indian defense spending, development of offensive conventional military strategies, a burgeoning Indo-US partnership, an expansion of the Indian nuclear weapons program after the nuclear deal with the United States. For Pakistan, these threats, whether they're real or perceived, provide ample justification for its nuclear buildup. The second force behind this expansion is, I think for want of a better term, the black hole of deterrence logic. And by this I mean that as Pakistan places increasing emphasis on nuclear weapons to counter Indian military threats rather than conventional arms, nuclear deterrence has become a self-reinforcing phenomenon. Whenever the Indian threat is perceived to grow, it justifies more or new nuclear capabilities. At some point, nuclear weapons become a solution in search of a problem. Today, that means short-range battlefield nuclear weapons, but who knows where this logic might lead tomorrow. South Asia is a region with multiple potential sources of conflict, unclear nuclear red lines, and considerable room for miscalculation. Political pressure seems to be growing in India for a punitive response to the next terror attack attributed to Pakistan. Should there be another crisis, the potential speed of escalation may not afford the United States much time to intervene and attempt to contain the conflict. This necessitates that American officials and military officers maintain strong working relationships with their counterparts in both countries. The same is true of efforts to secure nuclear weapons and material. And to be fair, I think Pakistan is not given sufficient credit for the nuclear security practices it has put in place. I think they're probably quite good, although not foolproof. The prominence given to nuclear weapons in Pakistan's national security strategy means that the government has a very strong interest to protect them. That said, the frequency and severity of terrorist attacks on Pakistani military facilities, including on some thought to store nuclear weapons, speaks to a high threat environment. In addition to implementing the best possible nuclear security, it is also necessary to degrade the capabilities and reach of non-state groups that might seek to steal or explode a nuclear weapon. Thus, US policy can't focus only on improving security. There is necessarily a counterterrorism component as well. Ideally, the United States and others should seek ways to convince Pakistan to flatten the growth curve of its nuclear program. The honest assessment is, however, that since Pakistan embarked on a nuclear weapons program, very little the US has tried, whether sanctions or inducements, has had an appreciable impact. Recognizing that US options and leverage are limited, I think one possible opportunity is to incentivize restraints through something like membership in the nuclear suppliers group, uh, a process to negotiate benchmarks for membership for both India and Pakistan might encourage restraint in their nuclear programs. In closing, in my analysis, there continues to be a profound need for the United States to sustain options to mitigate perceived nuclear threats in South Asia. Notwithstanding the challenges posed by Pakistan to US interests, this means preserving, to the extent possible, patterns of cooperation and institutional relationships that facilitate US influence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, uh, thank you for inviting me uh, to testify about Pakistan and the challenges for U.S. interests. This morning I will focus on three sets of issues, all of which I've covered at greater length in my written testimony. Let me begin with the question of U.S. security assistance to Pakistan. Uh, Americans have been, I think rightly, frustrated by our tortured relationship with Pakistan. Uh, not least because we have courted Islamabad with tens of billions of dollars in assistance since 9-11. And the question that is often raised is whether we should continue to provide aid at all. I believe we should, 
but also that our next president should take another long, hard look at our Pakistan strategy across the board. Now, part of my answer to this question is tactical. Uh, Pakistan is a high-stakes game for the United States. Washington would be wise to steer clear of risky policy moves at the tail end of this administration unless they hold realistic promise of big gains. This is not an unqualified argument against cutting Pakistan's aid. Uh, it's only an argument for thinking carefully and acting with purpose. Top U.S. policymakers should appreciate that the inadequate cooperation we have from Pakistan today is probably better than none at all. We face some common enemies, including al-Qaeda, the Pakistani Taliban, and ISIS, even while we don't see eye to eye on other fronts. Now, in order to justify major policy shifts like eliminating aid, labeling Pakistan a state sponsor of terrorism, or uh, enacting sanctions, U.S. policymakers should be able to explain how such actions would make America's strategic predicament better. Uh, they would need to consider the possibility that coercion could backfire, raising tensions and making Islamabad less willing or able to advance any constructive agenda. So our next president could take a far more coercive approach with Pakistan, uh, but I think given the likely costs and benefits, I expect we're more likely to reduce and restructure assistance to Pakistan uh, than to end it altogether. Now in the process, we should find ways to more clearly link our ends with our means uh, and also to impose appropriate conditions in ways that more Pakistanis and Americans will actually understand. And I've tried to sketch out some of these in my written testimony. Now second, with respect to Pakistan's leadership, I would su suggest that it's difficult to predict who will be running Pakistan even by the end of this year. Over the past six months, there's been media speculation that Pakistan's prime minister might step down because of his failing health or because his family was implicated in the Panama Papers scandal. Uh, political opposition parties are again campaigning for his ouster. Other rumors swirl about whether the current army chief, General Raheel Sharif, uh, might be granted an extension rather than handing over his baton in November as scheduled. Now that said, policy continuity is more likely than change in Pakistan. This is because despite two rounds of democratic elections and eight years of civilian government, the military remains Pakistan's most dominant national political institution, the primary decision maker on core matters of defense and foreign policy, and the chief steward of Pakistan's growing nuclear arsenal. And the military's policies on issues of top importance to the United States are slow to change, even as new faces come and go in, in Islamabad or Rawalpindi. Now finally, top Pakistani officials claim they are countering all terrorists and militants on their soil, including groups that have historically enjoyed the support of the state, uh, like Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaish-e Mohammed, and the Haqqani Network. And Americans are justifiably skeptical of these claims. Uh, but even if Pakistan were to seriously tackle these groups, it's possible we wouldn't recognize it, at least not right away. Uh, if Pakistani leaders were aiming to demolish homegrown terrorist groups, they would have good reasons to hide their intentions and play a more subtle game of divide and conquer. And shortly after 9-11, U.S. policymakers were often willing to give President Musharraf uh, the benefit of the doubt when he said that he would eliminate all terrorists on his soil, but not all at the same time. At this stage in our relationship with Pakistan, however, the burden of proof has shifted to Islamabad. Now, for the moment, that means that we should limit our expectations, focus our bilateral relationship 
on where our security interests overlap, such as the fight against the Pakistani Taliban. And in that common fight, our assistance, including some relevant military equipment, uh, would be justified. But looking to the future, U.S. and Pakistani officials must understand that we're far from a sustainable equilibrium in our relationship. Fundamental differences persist, and another bilateral crisis is too easy to imagine. Our next president will need to undertake a comprehensive review of our Pakistan strategy to include questions of assistance, the promotion of democracy and good governance, and counterterrorism, among others. Thank you. Thank you very much. Go ahead, sir. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, I want to thank you very much, along with the other members of the committee, for inviting me here today to talk about what is arguably one of the most difficult, complicated, trying, and I would also argue most important foreign relationships. My personal knowledge of U.S.-Pakistani relations is primarily informed by practical experiences. I have engaged with others in trying to manage those relations dating back to the mid-1990s. As I began in the early days of the Clinton administration, I was a special assistant to the then Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs on loan from the CIA and was involved in the annual terrorism review involving Pakistan. And I can tell you that in 1993 and 1994, Pakistan came within a hair's breadth of ending up as a formal member of, a, uh, of the list of state sponsors of terrorism, dating back even then. Later in 1999, I was assigned as the CIA station chief in Pakistan with the responsibility for both Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I can say that during the three years of that tenure, I saw perhaps the worst U.S. relations with Pakistan in recent times, as well as perhaps the best ones in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I then returned to that sphere in 2004, 2006, when I was then the director of counterterrorism at CIA. As I look back on the history of U.S.-Pakistan relations over the last 50 years or so, it's very clear that we have a repetitive cycle at work here. The, the reasons for U.S. dissatisfaction with Pakistan may have evolved over time, from past reluctance to deal with anti-democratic military regimes to abhorrence of Pakistani atrocities in East Pakistan in the early 1970s, to concerns over nuclear proliferation and support of Kashmiri militants in the 80s and the 90s, to the preoccupation that we've just been discussing now with Pakistani tolerance for the Afghan Taliban and the Haqqani network. Throughout it all, however, the U.S. has been willing, at least episodically, to overlook its concerns with aspects of Pakistani behavior and to subordinate those concerns in, uh, in subordinate th those concerns to what we perceive at the time to be overriding national security priorities, only to revert then to more contentious relations when those interests no longer apply. I won't repeat the history of the 1980s where we were willing to overlook growing evidence of the Pakistani nuclear program, nuclear weapons program at the time, in deference to our joint efforts against the anti-Soviet Mujahideen. When, in the 1990s, with the Soviets having safely withdrawn from Afghanistan, we instead replaced our former rewards with congressionally mandated sanctions. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the cycle began again, needing a platform for operations in Afghanistan uh, and a partner to intercept al-Qaeda members who were fleeing from that country. The U.S. was willing to subordinate its broader concerns with Pakistani uh, support for militancy in Kashmir and elsewhere, as well as Pakistan's highly ambivalent 
relationship with the Afghan Taliban. And arguably, that is the bargain that we have maintained ever since. As U.S.-Pakistani relations have gone through these cycles of boom and bust, and as the U.S. policy toward Pakistan has alternated between extremes, some things have remained constant. Pakistan, for its part, has stubbornly clung to its own perceptions of national interest and has generally refused to compromise those perceived interests, even when their pursuit has, has seemed irrational or self-defeating in U.S. eyes, whether we're talking about nuclear weapons doctrine, the Pakistani assessment of threat from India, or its calculus regarding both foreign and domestic militant groups. Pakistani adherence to its perceived interests, in fact, has persisted irrespective of U.S.-administered punishments or inducements. This has generated considerable outrage and frustration, looking back over the years on the U.S. side, particularly in recent times in the context of counterterrorism, where the fight against radical Islamic militancy is seen here in both practical and moral terms. Pakistani fear of seeing Islamically inspired militants unite against it and its resulting insistence on making at times overdrawn and in fact wishful distinctions among militant groups based on the degree of proximate threat to Pakistan as opposed to others has led to U.S. charges, consistent charges of double dealing, particularly when the U.S. believes that it is, is paying the bill. To the U.S., the struggle against violent extremism is a moral imperative, a view which Pakistan used to making practical compromises with militancy in the context of both foreign and domestic politics simply does not share in the same way. U.S. frustration is mirrored on the Pakistani side with, by its perception of the U.S. as a fickle and, and inconstant partner, which does not recognize Pakistan's heavy sacrifices in a violent struggle with Pakistani-based extremists, which has been fueled in large measure by Pakistani support for U.S. counterterrorism policy. Now, that assertion may sound jarring to American ears, given the perceived limitations in Pakistani counterterrorism policy, but it, it is a view which is firmly held by the extremists themselves. Pakistani resentment of America is driven by the perception that the U.S. will never be satisfied by what Pakistan does. And given the serious underlying differences between the two, the Pakistanis are right. The U.S. is unlikely ever to be satisfied, and perhaps justifiably so. Once again, U.S.-Pakistani relations are at an inflection point. In recent years, U.S. relations with Pakistan have been driven largely by U.S. engagement in Afghanistan. But there has been a qualitative change in the nature and the aims of U.S involvement in Afghanistan. And the dynamic of U.S.-Pakistan relations needs to change along with it. I would argue that much of the current frustration with, with uh, U.S.-Pakistan relations is driven by backward-looking desires and concerns which simply no longer apply in the same way. The U.S.-NATO military posture in Afghanistan is a small fraction of what it once was. The U.S. no longer aims to defeat the Taliban. Instead, it hopes merely to keep the Kabul regime from being, de being defeated. With U.S. ends and means having changed so dr drastically in Afghanistan, it is highly unrealistic to suppose that Pakistan is going to make up the difference. Pakistan cannot succeed in bringing the Afghan Taliban to heel, where 150,000 U.S. and NATO troops and hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars have failed. And what's more, they're simply not going to try. Pakistani influence in Afghanistan, despite long-standing legend to the contrary, is distinctly limited. Pakistan's leadership understands that a Taliban victory in Afghanistan would be a strategic disaster for itself, but lacking the means to decisively influence events there, 
and continuing to harbor serious doubts about the strategic orientation of the Kabul regime, it is disinclined to take the risks involved in trying to do so. As Afghanistan settles into a dynamic stalemate of indeterminate outcome, it is time for the U.S. to refocus on its long-term fundamental interests in South Asia. The reasons for America's post-9-11 obsession with Afghanistan are clear enough. I was present, after all, at the creation. But long-term U.S. strategic interests in Pakistan actually dwarf those in Afghanistan. Arguably, we have allowed the tail to wag the dog for too long, and it is time to reorient our policy. Pakistan is now engaged in a long, complicated twilight struggle against religiously inspired extremism, both in internally and across its borders. For Pakistan, this is not simply a matter of finding, fixing, and eliminating committing terrorists. Ultimate victory will necessitate addressing the hold which various forms of extremism have long exerted on large portions of Pakistan's own body politic. And thus, political, the political environment in which important policy decisions are made. Long-term solutions for Pakistan will involve social and educational reforms as much as military action. But I would say that given Pakistan's importance in global counterterrorism policy, its status as a nuclear-armed state, its troubled relations with India, and its location at the heart of a highly important but politically unstable region of the world, the U.S. has a considerable stake in the outcome of that struggle and would be well advised to maintain a constructive engagement with Pakistan at multiple levels, lest the wrong side win. In Pakistan, as elsewhere, the U.S. must balance achievable goals with effective means. This may well dictate a, a lowering of overall U.S. expenditures in Pakistan than we see currently, but the dynamics and motivations behind those spending decisions must fundamentally change. Are we coming to a close? Uh, yes, yes, sir, we are. Um, let me just say that limited U.S. means will have to be calibrated in Pakistan against achievable goals in light of U.S. priorities going forward. That said, given overarching U.S. interests in the region, there will be many worthy candidates for U.S. assistance, many of which have been touched on here. But in short, the U.S. dares not turn its back on Pakistan as it seeks to protect its serious national security interests in South Central Asia. Wise policy going forward will require the U.S. to rebalance an overly Afghan-centric uh, policy posture of the past and to accept, however reluctantly, those aspects of tactical Pakistani behavior it cannot change focusing instead on priority long-term goals which can actually be achieved. Such a policy will often feel less than satisfying, but in my view, it is the only responsible way forward. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thank you all for your testimony. I'm going to defer to our ranking member to begin and again say that, uh, look, I, I think the relationship uh, with Pakistan is important. Um, it has been transactional. It's moved to a more wholesome relationship. Now it's back into, I think, a very transactional relationship. I think in many ways they generate aid from the United States by, by their bad behavior and threatening uh, issues relative to, to their nuclear program. But uh, I would agree that it's a, a very important relationship, and that's why we're having this hearing. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you. And let me thank all three witnesses for their testimony. Uh, let me start by saying that uh, this Congress is not going to take any definitive actions in regards to Pakistan before the elections. We're going to probably vote a, a continuing resolution that will just continue current policy. 
and we will not be taking up any vehicle that could uh, affect uh, Congress, affect uh, uh, this relationship. So this hearing, and I hope the testimony will help us understand uh, what is likely to be con uh, being considered as we move into the next administration, working with Congress as it relates to the policy with Pakistan. And I don't have any specific recommendations, but I want to sort of challenge this. Pakistan's one of the largest recipients of development assistance of any country from the United States. And if you pointed out, over a long period of time, we've seen marginal progress in regards to a warm relationship with the United States. And the priorities that we believe are important in that bilateral relationship. They certainly have not been helpful in dealing with the broader issues of counterterrorism. They've been centric to their own country and not really engaged in helping us deal with the problems of terrorism against India or the Akani network, and may have been counterproductive, as Chairman Corker pointed out, in supporting these efforts. You point out in the testimony that their role in Afghanistan may be very marginal right now. They may not be able to do much for us in Afghanistan. Their anti-American rhetoric is extremely problematic. They've built up a nuclear capacity far beyond what was our believed understanding and show no signs of slowing down their nuclear uh, weapon activity. They're developing relations with China, which we are watching, which is not necessarily counterproductive to us, but we wonder as to where their, uh, where their future, or where they see their future. Uh, they have been, um, they're affecting our relationship with India, uh, a country in which we are trying to develop a much more uh, strategic alliance with. And their human rights record has been moving in the wrong direction. So why shouldn't we consider a fundamental change in America's relationship with Pakistan? And what danger is there? It seems to me, I'm not going to get an answer to that, but it seems to me that they're going to fight terrorism in their own country. That's what they're doing now. They may not have the same capacity without help from the United States, and we could talk about that. But they're doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for the region. They're not doing it for the United States. What are we getting out of this? Why shouldn't we look at taking, a, my staff told me about 600 million a year, we do in development assistance, and looking at countries in which we can get better return? Whoever wants to respond, don't, don't be bashful. Apparently they agree with the assessment and want to move on, so. Uh, if we have a brief response, Mr. Grenier, we'll start with you. Yes, Senator, I think that, in fact, we do need to review and, if you will, zero base our relations with Pakistan. Uh, you've already pointed out the many areas in which the Pakistanis are not moving in concert with, uh, with our views. Uh, in fact, certain areas where they are uh, perhaps undermining U.S. interests. Uh, they don't see their problems in the way that we think they ought to, and that Pakistani perception is unlikely to change, except slowly. That said, 
that we do have uh, an important stake, given the broadness of our interests uh, in that region. So how do we direct this? We've, we've tried conditionality. That has not mm -hmm. produced the type of results that we thought. You said start with a zero game. Well, start with zero game means we start with cutting off all of our assistance. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're suggesting? No, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think that we would end up at zero, but I, I would recommend that we, that we do a zero-based review. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, we would, we would conclude that, in fact, uh, it makes sense for us to uh, support Pakistani uh, military development, particularly in counterterrorism in parts of this country that and What do we get out of their counterterrorism? Remind me. Other than fighting the terrorists in their own country, what are we getting from them? Well, uh, sir, for, for many years, uh, they have helped us uh, in a very... Uh, open-handed manner against Al-Qaeda. Now, obviously, the importance of Al-Qaeda in and that when region... we do operations that are regional, they continue to blast us for that, being offended that we are coming into their country to clean up the region? Yes, sir, and I, I would say that uh, there are often domestic political reasons uh, for that. I hear that all the time. Sure. But, you know, there, there comes a point where it becomes real when they say it's just for politics. Mm -hmm. Well, again, the... I think the, the Pakistani perspective on these things is necessarily going to be different from ours. Dr. Mark, do you want to comment briefly? Um, just on the, on the narrow question of, of security assistance and Pakistan's behavior on the counterterror front, I would agree with a lot of the frustration. Um, there are two points that I make in my testimony about areas where they have been helpful, and I think continue to be, but not in ways that are necessarily public, uh, air corridor into Afghanistan and drone strikes. Uh, there are protests uh, by Pakistanis, and I agree with you that that's unhelpful. We'd like to get to a place where uh, we can publicly yeah, and, and, and routinely and, cooperate. And, I, and but, I've been in close yeah. briefings, and, yep. and I understand that there is a different uh, uh, perspective. But I'm wondering how different it really is. How, how I'm sorry? I mean, how useful uh, their quiet help to us is. Well, from someone who is working outside of government and, and watching drone strikes as they're reported in the media, uh, my impression would be that uh, though the tempo of those strikes has gone down, they do persist, they are useful, and um, on occasion they are done, it seems, from the outside without their help, but often uh, there are areas where uh, these the strikes... Drone strikes continue. are very important, don't get me yes. wrong. And my question is how helpful have the Pakistanians been in regards to that? And I know some of this we, we cannot talk about in an open right. I, I, I yeah, fully understand that. Right. But I, I just raise the, the value issue and you look at the investments we're making and whether there aren't alternative ways to get some of this help without putting up with the support for activities that are counterproductive to U.S. interests. Right. Yeah. Sorry. There may Dr. well be. Don't, yeah. don't, you would, my time is over, so if you have a, a minute in response. Uh, give it very, very briefly, Senator. Um, I think that if you consider the security threats to nuclear weapons and the potential that there are still groups in Pakistan that might have interest in nuclear weapons and capability against the government, we've seen this in attacks on military facilities over time, uh, it continues to be in our, in, in our interest to make sure that those groups are not able to get uh, anywhere near those weapons. So the more nuclear weapons they produce, the more money we have to give them? There is a, per not necessarily uh, money, but there is a pernicious effect there that uh, the, the Chairman Corker pointed out in terms of threats and, and rewards. Yeah, we reward their bad behavior by more money, so they will conduct more bad behavior. Senator Perdue. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate uh, you calling this uh, meeting. I think Pakistan is in a very important uh, place geographically and in, from a time standpoint, too. You know, in my career, I, I lived in Asia and, and worked a good bit in Pakistan, in Karachi, in Lahore, and Lahore, and Islamabad. My friends in Pakistan have been very concerned about uh, the internal politics here for a long time and, and what's going on next door uh, in Afghanistan. When I think of, of Pakistan today, I think of a couple of things. One is this, the Pashtun instability between India and, and Pakistan. Um, the nuclear capability, which scares me to death, frankly, uh, given the anti-democratic um, ups and downs that you both, or you all three have talked about. I think of Afghanistan security and the economy network and what Pakistan is not doing regarding that uh, effort. And then Pakistan as a terrorist uh, haven. And so when I look at, there are a couple of reports that have come out. October 2014, a Pentagon report was the first ever to the claim that Pakistan uses Afghanistan-focused insurgents as proxy forces rather than allowing their presence by providing sanctuary and support. That's a damning report. Then in June of this year, in 16, Pentagon issued a report on the stability and security in Afghanistan, noting that Pakistan's vital role in reducing the regional threat posed by terrorists and insurgents has not been sustained. Then, in August of this year, Pentagon announced it would not certify Pakistan's action against the Akani network as sufficient. What that means is, is that half of our aid over the next year, 300 million, will not be released, and it can't be waived by the president, as has been past practice. And so, all of a sudden now, we, we're in a situation where, um, quite frankly, it, it's a very confused situation between the U.S. and Afghanistan in terms of what we're trying to communicate. And, and my question is, is really more in line with, um, Dr. Markey, what you said in Foreign Policy article uh, recently. It said, many experts believe that the U.S. Uh, aid is often worse than ineffective. It's positively counterproductive. I'd like you to expand on that, but I'd like the other two uh, panelists to also help me with this issue right now of what is our objective with Pakistan in terms of, of the objectives we have of stabilizing Afghanistan. I'm very concerned about their lack of cooperation there. We have plenty of DOD uh, information here in public documents and a lot more in classified documents that we know they're not participating and that is a dangerous threat in Afghanistan. We know the Pashtun issue is a very, it, it creates instability between India and uh, Pakistan. You know, there are 200 million people in Pakistan and the average age is 23. Their birth rate's very high. This is a potential um, hotbed for terrorism. So with all of those things bubbling around and our strategic interest in Afghanistan long-term, Dr. Markey, would you start it? I'd like the, the three of you just to comment, though, if, if money is not the answer, and we all agree that engagement is, is still uh, purposeful, wherein lies the, the answer in terms of how we do? I agree with zero-based approach on the money, $19 billion, but only $8 billion of that has actually been security efforts. About $11 billion has been humanitarian. So let, let's put it in perspective. It's not like this is a major... Uh, battleground force in terms of uh, money. But on the other hand, I don't know what, what they're going to do given that we're cutting off 300 or half of the money, I guess, that we're going to be, that we would normally be sending them this year. Dr. Markey. Yeah, uh, very briefly, I would say um, my points about the potential counterproductive nature of U.S. Uh, assistance to Pakistan um, relate to observations by many Pakistanis that they don't see necessarily where the resources are going. And many Pakistanis who uh, may be in the more liberal, cosmopolitan crowd often perceive that the money has supported the more repressive, 
anti-democratic forces in their country and that this, they would say, has been happening over decades. So that's where the counterproductive aspects are. So what we need, I would say broadly, uh, is a lot more clarity on precisely what our aims are. And for every dollar that flows from the United States to Pakistan, um, I would want to assign it a specific uh, use rather than, I would say what we have now is a much more muddled uh, perception would on- Would you agree that, that yeah. result versus use would be reasonable? That a specific that, result? Yes. As opposed uh, to a specific- What I would say, on, particularly on the security side, is that there should be three categories in the way we think about our assistance and the way that we condition it. Category one, things where they want and we want. It was said earlier that uh, they want to fight the Pakistani Taliban, those who are threatening them. We want to fight the Pakistani Taliban. Conditions in that area would be relatively limited because we want the same thing. Category two, we and they want similar things, but they want to do it differently than we think is right. We have concerns about the way they treat civilians in war zones, things like that, maybe improve their counterinsurgency capabilities. We would want to focus our money there use stricter conditions. Category three, areas where we want to tell them what we think they should do and we believe they are not doing. We hold out resources as inducements with limited expectations that those things will change, but demonstrating that we are willing and eager to be partners with them, thereby not closing doors over the long run, but not delivering assistance for things that Thank they you. don't do. Uh, Mr. Chairman, could I uh, sure. ask your forbearance and just yeah, ask sure uh, Mr. Grenier to respond yeah. to that quickly? We're, I'm out of time, so I'm ask your brevity, please. Senator, I, I, I very much agree with what uh, Dan Markey has just said. And w when I, I talk about sort of zero basing everything, I, I think we need to look at our assistance uh, to Pakistan in a very tactical way, in, in the same way that, uh, that Dan has just described, so that we have clear common purposes to which we are going to put specific aid and, and plans for and deliverables for what that aid is actually going to produce. Now, in some cases, particularly when you're talking about broad economic support, it's very difficult to, uh, to point to a, a specific result. I mean, the, the, the social problems in Pakistan are so vast, and, and the importance of our addressing them jointly are, are so important, but it's very, very difficult to actually see um, measurable progress over a, a short period of time. Th that said, I think we have to get away from the pattern that we've been in for so many years where we provide them with broad assistance, uh, which is not um, uh, accounted for in a very tactical way, and somehow expecting that we can use that as a tool, as a lever, to get them to change aspects of their behavior that, frankly, they simply are not going to change. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Um, Mr. Markey, I, I just I want to follow up a little bit on that point because that seems like a fairly straightforward, relatively easy to um, pursue um, way to think about assistance to Pakistan. So why haven't we done that? I think the short answer would be that uh, the nature of our relationship with Pakistan changed very dramatically after 9-11. And there were a number of assistance programs that were quickly put into place partly to encourage and partly at the time to reward Pakistan for some significant changes in its counterterrorism strategy. Um, in many ways, what we've done is we've layered on top of that over the past 15 years other uh, programs. And often, as changes have happened on the ground in terms of the realities or our perceptions of what the Pakistanis are or aren't doing, we justify different programs for different purposes. So F-16s at times initially looked like a reward for a strategic shift by Pakistan on Al-Qaeda. 
subsequently, they became uh, an, an effort to help them fight their counterinsurgency, to, to engage in counterinsurgency in the Fatah. Um, these justifications don't necessarily line up very effectively, and ultimately, as we've seen, they haven't been convincing uh, here at home. And so uh, I think the problem is that uh, history, <laughs> history, history of changing uh, relations um, and assistance programs maybe not keeping up with that, um, and a desire often to make a political case for uh, specific pots of money, um, a political case that will appeal to the widest constituency, but maybe uh, isn't internally consistent in a way that we'd like to see. When you say the widest constituency, are you talking about here in America as opposed to in Pakistan? Uh, in some cases, both, um, but mainly in terms of justifying it here at home. Um, F-16s were justified on a number of grounds, for instance, uh, including uh, the desire to, to simply get face time with Paki senior Pakistani leaders. Um, which of the justifications was actually true? Are they actually a, a useful counterinsurgency tool and so on? I think for different people, we've pulled out different reasons. Um, and I think the patience has worn thin on that. Um, in my visits to Pakistan as senator, one of the things I've heard everywhere I've gone has been um, the, the on-again, off-again nature of American assistance. Clearly, the Pressler Amendment had real implications for how Pakistanis viewed their ability to count on the U.S. Um, are there areas where we can look to our assistance and say that they, it has been effective, not military assistance, but economic assistance, and um, where Pakistanis have said, oh yes, this has been helpful? One of the things that I've heard mentioned has been our help after the earthquake. Um, that. That was one of the times when the Pakistani people really appreciated American um, support. Are there other things that we can cite and ways that we can look where we were successful and we should think about pursuing those kinds of efforts? Anyone? Um, yes, humanitarian assistance in the aftermath of earthquakes and other natural disasters can pay a dividend. Um, it's often um, short-lived, though. Uh, in terms of people's memories. Um, other examples of positive efforts by the United States, support to uh, higher education institutions uh, like the uh, Lahore University of Management Sciences. Uh, this is an area where generations now of Pakistan's leaders uh, and best and brightest have been trained and which wouldn't exist, I believe, if not for significant U.S. startup assistance at the beginning. Another example would be Pakistan's systems of um, of canals and dams, which were uh, built in the 60s and 70s uh, with considerable global assistance, but much of it actually coming from the United States, either directly or through multilateral lending institutions. Um, and those kinds of things have changed the map of Pakistan. Um, so it isn't true to say that we've never done anything right by Pakistan or that we haven't had a long-lasting benefit uh, to our assistance, even on the civilian side. Mr. Dalton, I, I only have a few minutes left, but I want to pursue your issue that you raised with respect to Pakistan's nuclear program and why that gives us a significant interest in what goes on there. And I wonder if you could give us your assessment of how secure um, the program is, and I assume that it is in Pakistan's interest to make sure that none of the materials or bombs get into the hands of terrorists and that they are equally concerned about that as we are. 
Thank you, Senator. I, I agree with that contention that, that they have a strong interest in doing it. Um, nuclear weapons are one of the few symbols in Pakistan that uh, there's political consensus on. Uh, maybe that and cricket are the only other things that everybody agrees on. Uh, nuclear weapons are, are great. They're sort of the, the crown jewels. Uh, and so they have undertaken, I think, fairly significant efforts to make sure that they are well protected. Uh, there is a professional division uh, within the strategic plans division uh, that uh, addresses security. Uh, in my interactions with them, my, my sense is that they are a very professional organization. Uh, they understand the challenges that they face. Uh, they understand the threats that they face. Uh, and they have put in place, I think, as good a system uh, as they can, recognizing the challenges that they face. The challenges are not insubstantial. We move nuclear material on our interstate system under heavy guard, big convoys. You can't do that in Pakistan because the threat signature becomes too high. So they do face real challenges when it comes to moving material, keeping it secure, um, making sure that the, uh, the personnel and the, the nuclear labs uh, are not having sympathies with non-state uh, groups and so forth. Um, but I think to the extent that is observable from publicly uh, available information, uh, they have done as, as good a job as they can given their interests. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses for your testimony today. Uh, just a, a quick question on uh, an issue that we haven't spent too much time on this morning in North Korea. According to the Department of Defense's 2015 report on North Korea's military power, in addition to Iran and Syria, past clients for North Korea's ballistic missiles and associated technology have included Egypt, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, and Yemen. Uh, the report also asserts that North Korea provided Libya with uranium hexafluoride, the form of uranium used in the uranium enrichment processes to produce fuel for nuclear reactors and nuclear weapons via the proliferation network of Pakistani nuclear scientist A.Q. Khan. More recently, however, media outlets in India have asserted that the relationship between Pakistan and North Korea persists today. So could the three of you, any of you, uh, all of you, address the relationship, if any, that Pakistan currently has with North Korea? Um, and do you believe there are ongoing illicit nuclear ties between these two nations today? Uh, thank you, Senator. Why don't I start, and if others want to join in. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, there is information to suggest uh, linkages between the Pakistani nuclear program and missile programs in North Korea in the past. Uh, after the AQ Khan network was dismantled uh, in the early 2000 timeframe, uh, most of those suggestions have, have gone away, uh, and I think there's no uh, sort of accepted public information, aside from what we've seen in Indian media accounts, uh, to suggest that those linkages are ongoing. Uh, and I think if you look at the steps that Pakistan has taken since then to put in place uh, a legal framework, uh, to put in place an export control structure, uh, a, a system to keep checks on the scientists so that they're not doing things that they're supposed to do, uh, I think they've, they've demonstrated a desire and interest to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, they understand the damage that the Khan network did to their reputation, uh, to, the, to, to their desire that their nuclear program be seen as a legitimate uh, national security tool for the state. Uh, and so I think in that context, um, although I wouldn't rule it out uh, because there is a history, I also think it's, it's not as likely today that we would see that kind of cooperation. Anybody else wish to address this? Yes, Senator, I, I think that there's an important point that's lurking in there as well, because it is not an accident that the relations that uh, Pakistan uh, developed, and, and specifically A.Q. Khan, 
and the facilities that he controlled, uh, developed uh, with uh, North Korea and also uh, with Iran, that that occurred during the 1990s. And that was a, a period during which Pakistan was sanctioned about as heavily as it possibly could by the United States. Uh, it was very clear that Pakistan had a continuing national interest in developing nuclear weapons in order to, uh, to maintain um, a, uh, uh, a threat against uh, India, given the, the fact that uh, there was no way that they could possibly match uh, uh, conventional military capabilities uh, of India and absent other means of pursuing what they saw as an overridingly important uh, national security goal, they chose to get help where they could find it, in this case, in some cases with, uh, with North Korea and, uh, and Iran. And, and I, I, would, I would say that uh, to the extent that we can, we need to be very, very careful that we maintain at least some level of engagement with, with Pakistan. If we treat them as a pariah, we, we force them into a pariah corner, they are likely to behave as a pariah. Mm -hmm. Stepping back a little bit from that question to more uh, 30,000-foot level view, what is the relationship today between North Korea and, and Pakistan? I think it's uh, difficult to, to characterize. Uh, there's not a lot of public information. Um, I did notice recently a news article that uh, the North Korean airlines were not going to be permitted to fly into Pakistan any longer. Uh, it's not entirely clear what the basis for that is, but it does suggest that there is some trouble there uh, and that the trade relations that they have enjoyed in the past may be uh, souring in some way. Um, so it's not clear that there is a, st a strong relationship uh, at this point. And I would just point out, too, that it's not just India that is concerned about this. There's articles in the Japan Times as well uh, pointing to evidence of uh, North Korean activities increasing between the two nations and concern over uh, proliferation activities. I think that's just something that we could uh, continue to, to look at and, and make sure that our concerns aren't uh, overlooked there. Uh, in terms of China and Pakistan, the port opening, the $46 billion economic corridor, how do you see that relationship growing, changing, and uh, what do you think the uh, the likely long-term ramifications of, are of that growing relationship. You know, I, I was in Pakistan uh, back in February, March of this year, and uh, principally to ask questions about the China-Pakistan relationship and and to learn more about it from my research. And I would say that it is uh, perhaps the single most exciting thing that's happened in Pakistan, uh, in in a, in a semi-positive way for some time. Uh, Pakistanis that I met with were almost uniformly eager to talk about the opportunities that they perceive uh, uh, with respect to China, the kinds of investments that uh, are planned and are, in fact, ongoing by the Chinese, the ways in which this may contribute uh, to improving Pakistan's investment climate, not just for Chinese activities, but for other international investment, which has been extraordinarily poor uh, in Pakistan, and the ways that ultimately that may contribute to growth and economic opportunity. So from a U.S. perspective, I think we have to take two looks at this. One is, in the short to medium term, it's relatively positive. I mean, we have concerns about Pakistan's political uh, stability, and part of that is related to its economic reality. And if they can get more investment, more jobs, economic growth, there are opportunities to build a country of now 200 million people going on possibly 300, 350 million people by mid-century. These are things that should be supported. And so where the Chinese are paving the way, uh, we probably should follow suit. Over the longer run, we're going to have some questions about what this is going to mean for China's profile uh, in South Asia, China's profile leading into Central Asia, and the rest of Eurasia. Uh, that will depend in many ways on how the United States perceives its broader relationship with China. And as we veer into possibly a more competitive relationship, China's expansion may come in some ways at our expense. That's how we're going to have to think about it. But that's the longer term strategic framework. 
in the short run, uh, I perceive it as relatively positive. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Dr. Dalton, I'm very concerned about the risk of nuclear war between India and Pakistan. Pakistan's development of low-yield tactical nuclear weapons intended for use on the battlefield is especially dangerous. These weapons are meant to make it easier for Pakistan's military to pull the nuclear trigger. As a result, they will increase the probability that confrontations with India end up spiraling out of control and leading to nuclear catastrophe. Pakistan has uh, continued to rapidly produce fissile material, and it has refused to lift its veto on negotiations of a fissile material cutoff treaty at the Conference on Disarmament. These policies threaten to accelerate the nuclear arms race in the region. Pakistan actually has the ultimate responsibility for its uh, dangerous nuclear policies, but the United States played a role, as has uh, India. Uh, that's especially true with uh, regard to the, um, the deal that we cut with India in 2008 in terms of their continued uh, production of nuclear materials not under full scope safeguards. Uh, and my warning at the time and others that Pakistan would just continue to massively produce nuclear materials if that was going to be our policy. And so that's exactly what has happened. And now the administration has sought to further water down our nonproliferation policy uh, by admitting India to the nuclear suppliers group despite unambiguous guidelines that nuclear supplier group members should be parties to the nonproliferation treaty. Not only are we going to grant India an exemption from established global rules, but we're actually seeking to allow India to join the body that decides on those rules. Obviously, Pakistan will not react well to that as we talk about their nuclear threat. So from your perspective, uh, uh, Dr. Dalton, do you believe removing the shackles on India's nuclear program worsened the nuclear competition in South Asia? Thank you, Senator Markey. I think there's two points that I would offer uh, in response there. Uh, the first point is uh, the availability of information regarding the Indian nuclear program um, that has you know, some credibility to it, is, it makes it quite difficult to come up with an assessment about whether there's been an actual increase in Indian fissile material production for nuclear weapons. There's some NGO I'm talking about the Pakistani response. Do you, do you think it worsened the race with Pakistan? Did Pakistan respond yes. to that? Yes, absolutely. And did that make the world more dangerous in that region? Pakistan's yes, absolutely. And, and okay. Right. And, and I think the point that I would make there is whether there's a, a real um, reason for Pakistan to respond or it's, you know, their perception that their security environment is worsening is, is important. But for them, they've decided that things look bad. They need more weapons. They said they would do it. Yeah. And they did it. Yep. Okay. But it was in response to a policy that we put on the books. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Okay, thank you. Now, Dr. Dalton, in your written testimony, you warned that Pakistani and Indian officials have expressed skepticism that the other side's nuclear threats are credible. There, you, in your, uh, you note that there is no shared sense of where nuclear red lines might be drawn. That is a very alarming statement in your testimony. Uh, if both sides doubt the deterrence of the other's threats, then nuclear deterrence may fail. What role should the U.S. play? Uh, to help India and Pakistan prevent unintended nuclear war? 
uh, as you pointed out, Senator, the desire by Pakistan in having tactical nuclear weapons is to create a perception that there is a lower threshold for use. In their perspective, that enhances the deterrence value of those weapons and should discourage India from contemplating uh, sort of uh, limited conventional military operations, which the Indian Army and others have been uh, contemplating and, and exercising uh, in recent years. Um, I think that does create a condition where there is ripeness for deterrence failure. Uh, the Indian establishment doesn't believe that Pakistan would use tactical nuclear weapons on its own territory. They think that is not credible. Pakistani uh, officials and experts think that it is not credible that India would use nuclear weapons in response to Pakistan. Right, let me just stop weapons. you right there. Yeah. So uh, then we kind of get into this uh, question of how do we how do we deal with that issue? And um, Pakistan's foreign ministry recently suggested that Pakistan would be willing to enter into a bilateral agreement with India that could bind each country not to conduct additional nuclear test explosions. Currently, both countries maintain unilateral moratoria on nuclear testing. Neither are signatories to the CTBT. What are the prospects for India and Pakistan to agree on a bilateral uh, non-testing agreement? Dr. Markey? I just wanted to say that word, Dr. Markey. Um, my wife is a physician. She won't take my name, so I just <laughs> wanted to say Dr. Markey to someone. It's, it's, so a, it's a pleasure to say Senator Markey. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, well. sir. Um, so how, how, how can we get the U.S. to help to get a bilateral um, a nuclear test deal between these two countries? Uh, I have to say that my read on Pakistan's statements uh, regarding uh, this, this desire to, to make a deal with India um, strike me as a kind of a, a, a diplomatic play on Pakistan's part. Um, part of India's You don't think they're sincere? I don't. Um, well, they may, be, they may well be sincere, but they know that India uh, is also justifying its nuclear posture because of India's concerns about China. And so they know that India uh, will be reluctant and unlikely to take steps uh, merely to match Pakistan. Uh, and so they know that they're, they have a, a high ground on this issue uh, and that India will not likely respond uh, the way that they'd like. Do the other two witnesses agree with that? That it's not that that ultimately it's not something that could ever bear fruit that we could have a bilateral agreement between the two countries? It's entirely possible. I think the context depends. In this instance, I agree with Dan that uh, the effort was to try to show the Indians up when it come to membership criteria for the nuclear suppliers group. This was a diplomatic gambit. Uh, on the other hand, one could imagine that if there were a process by which both states could become eligible for NSG membership, this kind of thing where they would have to demonstrate something more than a unilateral test moratorium might become a, a requirement, in which case a bilateral agreement could be useful. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. you, sir. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank the panel. Let me, let me just say as a preface, um, I think our overall posture towards Pakistan, in addition to the focus of this hearing, uh, however, is uh, much broader. And our stated policy is to support and strengthen a more democratic, stable, and prosperous Pakistan. And I know that many of my colleagues join me in the belief that to truly do so, Pakistan must take meaningful steps to strengthen the rule of law, democratic institutions, to empower civil society actors, and to uphold human rights. And while I recognize this panel may not be in the best position to specifically address those concerns, although they may have views on them, I think we would be remiss not to stress the importance of these needed reforms and actions. And I have previously raised concerns with Prime Minister Sharif about new laws 
that would hamper the ability of national and international NGOs that focus on democracy and human rights to successfully operate in Pakistan. And I think we need to give a renewed sense of uh, urgency to the process that is going on. I think the ranking member mentioned in his opening comments. Uh, because while we must focus on national security and cooperation with Pakistan against actors who threaten our interests and Pakistani national security and that of our allies in the region, including India, we cannot overlook the role of governance and civil society uh, plays in developing long-term security. And I hope that at some point, Mr. Chairman, we'll have some opportunity to focus on that as well. Uh, so I want to waver my savor uh, to our friends in Pakistan about what's going on with national and international NGOs, because when we talk about measurements of how we provide security assistance, in my mind, yes, there is security assistance, but there's also the longer range set of needs to develop a populist and a civil society underpinnings of what the support for those security operations need to be. And I am worried about what is happening in Pakistan in that regard. Now, with that having been said, in July 2014, Prime Minister Sharif uh, noticed the, uh, announced that all foreign fighters and local terrorists will be wiped out without any exception which is a welcome declaration given the rampant terrorist activity in Pakistan, particularly in the Fatah and Waziristan regions. What we have seen, however, is a clear prioritization from Pakistani security forces of the Pakistani Taliban, which directly and almost exclusively threatens their interests directly. And I understand that to some degree. However, now that we have seen successes in those operations, I'd like to ask the panel, I know this was touched upon briefly, but I'd like to go, go greater in depth. Do you believe that Pakistani security forces will actually take action against other groups, including the Haqqani Network, uh, Lashkar al-Taiba, Jaish al-Muhammad? These networks pose a direct threat to the United States and our allies in the region. But Pakistan seems to have thus far had mixed results on carrying through its pledge, a pledge to attack all foreign fighters. So if the answer was, well, we have a domestic challenge and we've got to take care of our domestic challenge before we can deal with the foreign fighters issues, now that that largely has been, maybe not totally, but largely been significantly addressed, what's the excuse now? What's our expectations and what can we do as we talk about figuring about how we calibrate this assistance in a way that we understand that there are mutual interests here, um, what can we do to see those specific uh, elements be pursued? Senator, I, I wish that there were a, a simple answer uh, to a very uh, direct and, uh, and straightforward question. And I think that as we sort of peel back the layers of the onion in the, the likely Pakistani response to that question, and we've, we've heard elements of that response any number of times, part of what they say is true, part of it is sincere, part of it is mendacious, uh, part of it is self-serving, and it's a great challenge to somehow um, 
uh, compart all of that and figure out what is a, a proper way forward, knowing that our track record for influencing Pakistani behavior in these areas is, is very poor, to say the very least. I think it is true that as the Pakistanis uh, focus as a matter of priority on those groups that primarily threaten them, uh, they are legitimately very concerned about the, the possibility of different groups which currently do not cooperate with one another, certainly against Pakistani interests, in fact, cooperating with one another in the future. I think that's been a great consideration for the Pakistanis in the, in the context of North Waziristan. Uh, I think that they had to reach certain agreements uh, with certain groups, perhaps to have included uh, the Haqqanis before they felt that they were in a position to actually go into North Waziristan, invade that area, as they had promised to do uh, for years. Um, I think at the same time, though, it must be said that I, knowing the Pakistanis as I do, I strongly suspect that uh, they are somewhat loath uh, to completely undercut the LET, even if it were possible for them in domestic political terms to do so, knowing that the LET and, and both and Jaysh Muhammad, uh, among others, are very potent potential weapons that they can use in the context of, of uh, Kashmir. Uh, they are they're very concerned about the future of Afghanistan. Their tools for affecting events in Afghanistan are, uh, are not particularly effective. So basically but basically you're but saying uh, uh, that their interests diverge from ours. That's a simple I'm sorry? That their interests diverge from ours. In, in a tactical sense, absolutely. Well, okay. So that, that gives me a lot of insight as to uh, how I might deal with them. Uh, Dr. Markey? Yeah, I'd like to make two points. Uh, first, uh, to the extent that they are likely or would ever act against some of these groups, I think we're less likely to see an all-out military push of the sort that we've seen against the TTP than um, we might see more law enforcement actions. And because particularly LET does enjoy a certain um, political uh, clout, uh, to that they will be taking steps and they will be justifying these moves on the basis of trying to incorporate parts of these organizations within normal nonviolent politics in Pakistan. They would much, and that gets back to your broader point about the need to promote a more democratic, moderate Pakistan and one that um, isn't inclined to turn to violent milita milita uh, militarism or militancy, I guess, uh, in so many different ways. Um, and that's the second point I wanted to make, which is basically um, we, ha we need a Pakistan that is more democratic long-term to counter the appeal of radical um, ideologies in that country. I mean, that's the only, you get a legitimate, popularly elected government um, at that can actually deliver. Uh, that's the only kind of permanent solution, I would imagine, to the appeal of a, a radical uh, revolutionary uh, Islam in the country. And the problem is, I see it, I agree with you, I think, uh, is that while we have a veneer of a democratic process, and we have had, I think fortunately, two rounds of national elections, and hopefully upcoming a third, um, it hasn't seeped down and it hasn't become a democratic practice uh, that is necessarily going to provide the kind of legitimacy that the country, that its leadership, that the state needs in order to be effective over the long run. So I'm, I'm very concerned in exactly the same way. All right, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank the witnesses for really fantastic testimony. I want to drill down a little bit further on this question of uh, what influences uh, extremism, extremist groups in Pakistan. 
Um, one uh, terrorism expert who helped um, the government come up with its response to the Peshawar school attack said, uh, quote, terrorism has different shades, but madrasas have been the nursery. Um, I, I know there's no way to paint with broad brush the uh, type of, of, of learning and the, and, and the type of teaching that happens in madrasas, but there are estimates suggesting that a large percentage of madrasas, many of which have been set up with Saudi money or Gulf money, are preaching a version of Islam that often becomes the foundation for extremist groups who come in to try to pervert those teachings into violence. And of course, the Pakistanis have recognized this uh, by uh, planning a campaign of registration for these schools. It has gone slowly, my understanding is, in part because it's difficult to pick out the ones that um, present problems versus the ones that are legitimately teaching Islam. I, I'll start with you, uh, Mr. Grenier, just to talk a little bit about uh, this issue and, and how it plays into a, a broader set of U.S. policies, not just related to the way in which we fund Pakistan, but the way in which we partner with other governments that are putting money into those schools, which in many ways are sowing the seeds, becoming the nursery of extremism. Yes, Senator, the, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult and intractable problem. And there are a lot of different aspects to it. And, and I think it's, it's, it's important that you mention that this is something which, uh, if, as we look at the phenomenon of radical madrasas in Pakistan, it's not just a, 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 only a Pakistani problem. Uh, as you say, a lot of the money for construction of these madrasas comes from outside. And while there are government elites in other countries, perhaps uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, who recognize that there, there is a problem with this, it is a very difficult political line for them to take with their own people who feel that they are simply promoting Islam. What can possibly be wrong with that? Um, uh, you're right that uh, the Pakistanis recognize the long-term threat here, and uh, there, there have been, uh, there is now, as there has been in the past, uh, an effort uh, to try to license these schools, to try to change the curricula of these schools. Uh, under the best of circumstances, that would be a very daunting project in a country with a population the size of Pakistan, Pakistan's and, uh, and the lack of resources that they have. Um, but these are not the best of circumstances. And the, the Pakistani ability to pursue this kind of a program in a systematic way, uh, in a persistent way, is, is simply nowhere near what it really ought to be. And uh, I think w one of the other uh, aspects to all of this that's extremely important uh, is to recognize that these uh, madrasas, whatever else they may represent, uh, are also a very important social institution within Pakistan. Uh, many of the children who attend these madrasas would not get three meals a day but for their attendance at these madrasas. And so th the idea that you were simply going to go and, and close down non-compliant madrasas is simply a political non-starter in many areas of Pakistan. But, but let, me, let me put it to you, Dr. Markey, in a simpler way. It's not a coincidence that as these schools have multiplied, as the Saudis in particular have, have sent billions of dollars into parts of Pakistan, that these terrorist organizations have been more successful than ever before in recruitment. I understand all of the difficulties in pulling this apart, but from, US, from a standpoint of U.S. policy, it's pretty easy to at least acknowledge that these two trend lines, the increasing money going in to fund these schools and the increasing ability to recruit, is not a coincidence. 
It's not a coincidence. Uh, I would just step back, and there's also a history to this. Uh, it goes back in many ways to the Saudi global response to the Iranian Revolution. Pakistan has been a sort of a proxy battlefield for Iran and Saudi Arabia ever since. Um, and so where Saudis have funded certain things and certain groups inside of Pakistan, the Iranians have at times done similar. And so you've seen bloodletting uh, on both sides. One other related point. Um, I wouldn't want us to focus too closely only on madrasas or even Saudi-sponsored institutions, which include madrasas, but also look at the public education system in Pakistan and the curriculum there, which has been widely cited in a number of different reports as having kind of anti-Western, anti-Indian, uh, promoting a lot of narratives that are perhaps not quite the same as promoting um, terrorism, uh, but do create a narrative of Pakistan's place in the region and the world uh, that is one that, that's not helpful to us. And then one last point on this. Um, there's some, some good news here. Many Pakistanis, in vast, I would think the vast, vast majority, simply want their kids to get a good education. And what you're seeing is actual disgust with a lot of the options uh, that have been available, including public schools that have been failing, um, and investments by middle and lower income Pakistanis uh, into private English language uh, teaching you know, schools, opportunities for their kids, because what they're looking for is a way for them to actually get decent jobs and compete in a global uh, marketplace, and they're willing to invest in that. So you know, we shouldn't think that this is something that, uh, whether madrasas or the school curriculum in the public schools, has the natural and uh, national support of Pakistanis. Uh, they actually, I think, if left to choose, would want something different. This is an incredibly uncomfortable conversation for us because it puts the United States in the position of appearing to decide what brand of Islam should be taught and what shouldn't. And frankly, it's at some levels an inappropriate conversation for us, but it's important. It's important for us to untangle this because getting this right, trying to figure out the influences into extremism, frankly, is much more important to our battle uh, against these groups than picking who we strike with drones and who we don't on the back end. So I appreciate your answers to the questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Mr. Chairman, I just really wanted to uh, make uh, uh, an observation, thank the panel again for their testimony. It seems to me the nuclear suppliers group might give us an opportunity. I was, Dr. Dalton, I was just impressed by your observation it's so difficult to get India and Pakistan to have substantive trust in each other and, and, and substantive discussions. Uh, and the, the nuclear suppliers group joining it is not just technical, it's also political. It may very well give an opportunity, looking a little bit longer term, to get a much better control over what's happening in India and Pakistan in regards to their nuclear programs. That's something I think the United States working with some of our uh, partners who are interested in nonproliferation, it may be an area where we can make some progress. Secondly, we haven't talked about the Pakistani diaspora. I think that also could be helpful to us in trying to establish a more constructive relationship uh, between the United States and Pakistan. And the last point that Senator Menendez raised on good governance, uh, I think it's critically important. Uh, just because you have elections doesn't mean you're going to have a government that is going to be respected by the people as taking care of their needs. And if you lose confidence, it does present the void where extremists can, uh, can prosper. So I do think we need to put a much stronger priority 
on the governance issues in Pakistan. But, Mr. Chairman, I thought this was an extremely important panel, and I thank you very much for calling the hearing. Well, thank you, and I want to thank each of you for being here and sharing your expertise and uh, giving us additional insights. And, you know, I don't think we spend uh, near enough time here. Uh, the way the processes work, the uh, appropriations process happens in a very swift manner uh, governed by a few. I'm in no way criticizing them. It's just the, the lack of staffing that exists there. The authorizing committees uh, which have the ability to deal with folks like you in a much more depth in depth manner and others uh, really don't uh, play the roles here in the United States Senate that they should. And I think much of the insight here um, as we try to move ahead with, with aid uh, issues uh, in the future is 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 going to be very useful. But thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for your testimony. People will want to ask questions in writing. Um, if we could, we'll leave the record open uh, without objection until Monday. If y'all could respond fairly quickly, we'd appreciate it. And again, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Meeting is adjourned.